Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Uh, We've had midweek Champions League action. The Champions League kicked off this week. We're uh, preparing for more Premier League action this weekend. It has been, results-wise, all right. It's been grand, hasn't it? In fairness. Uh, Performances, different thing. We might touch on those uh, between now and the end of the podcast. And what else? I don't know. We're here. We're here. If you hear any weird noises, I apologize. It's just that my neighbors up the road have decided that now is a good time to take the front off their house, gut the insides. They've got like a kanga hammer going all thing. They brought a digger through the back of the house, which is amazing because it's like a, it's a sort of a terraced house. They've got no side entrance. Somehow they managed to get like a little teeny tiny digger. Uh, they're doing all that kind of stuff out the back. And to be honest, I'm a bit pissed off. It's a bit inconvenient for me. Why can't they just accept this house the way it was when they bought it and not seek to improve it or their living conditions? I think it's quite selfish. You know, they they didn't consult with me at all. They didn't say, hey, Andrew, would it be okay with you if we made noise during times when you might possibly be recording? We don't even know if you record or not, but I think that's the kind of thing you should take into account before you before you start these kind of renovations. So look, if there are noises and bangings and things going on in the background, it's, it's beyond my control, as the man used to say. The other thing is that I had something really interesting and amusing, probably mind-blowing, would have improved your life in a very significant way. And I thought about it. I said, I'll tell them. I'll tell them this at the start of the podcast because it could be an interesting way to open the podcast. And then I had to go out of the house with a large furry beast a German shepherd who required outdoor activity. Uh, There were trees to be sniffed and urinated upon, 
and uh, he had to do his his normal trick of, I don't know if your dog does this, but my dog does exactly this. You know the way when you take them out for a walk, they're sniffing and they're going, I must find the exact right place to go for a plop. Like they have to find the, the, the optimum place. No, this one, no, not quite. No, this one isn't quite the right place. But but anyway, every single time, well, I won't say every single time, but like 95% of the time he does it right outside somebody's gate. It's not to the side. It's not down the road. It's not between two people's houses or the gate. Right in front of the gate. And, you know, most of the time that's absolutely fine. You know, you got your plastic bag, you pick it up and you go on your way. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the, the, where he plops is not really the story. The story is that he had to go out and do that, and I had to bring him, and I did that, and then I came home, and now I can't remember what it was that I was going to talk to you about. The thing, the important, funny, amusing, mind-blowing thing that would have been you know, great for all of us to share this information, this story, whatever it might be. I can't remember. I just can't remember. It may return to me. It probably won't. That's just the way my brain works at this moment in time. So uh, so my apologies for that. My apologies also for replacing that particular bit of uh, storytelling with one about dog poo. And where are dog poos? Um, I owe you one. Let's just say that I owe you one. So it was uh, Champions League during the week. Champions League kicked off um, across Europe. That's the whole point of it, I guess. Teams from across Europe coming together to play games that nobody really gives a fuck about till it gets to about the quarterfinals. That's what the Champions League is these days. But Arsenal were involved. Obviously, we played PSG. We'll we'll touch on that in a little while. Leicester City made their Champions League debut, and and they won. Nice to win on your first uh, Champions League game away at uh, Club Bruges. Not the most uh, difficult opponents, you would have to say, but nevertheless, they won. Manchester City won. They beat uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. I think it was uh, 4-0. Could well have been 4 I think it was 4-0. I didn't really pay an awful lot of attention because it's not the quarterfinals. I don't give a fuck. Nobody cares until the quarterfinals. But they've won anyway. And uh, Pep Guardiola has um, told Manchester City fans they should stop booing the Champions League anthem. And he's also urged them, you know, to to turn up for the games because hardly any of them came to the game. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that it was rearranged, but also uh, they just don't fill the stadium for Champions League games. And Pep Guardiola is telling the fans, come on, get get behind the team, get in. Imagine having a brand new manager like Pep Guardiola and imagine having spent all the money that Manchester City spend on players and you still can't fill your stadium for Champions League games. Look, I know it's against Borussia Mönchengladbach, but we've played like... FC Flange and the, the, the Emirates has still been absolutely full. Um, so he's telling them to, to turn up, but no such problems in that regard for, uh, for our neighbours, Tottenham Hotspur. That's right. Although the result didn't go their way against Monaco, they lost 2-1. I didn't see any of it. Not the quarterfinals. Don't give a fuck, etc., etc. But they've said... Three records. They were all over social media with the hashtag Koi's. I think it means cunts. Oh, yes. But they do, you know, for they can't fit the E in between the Y and the S, you see, because it takes up valuable characters in their tweets that they send out. They need them. They can't, you know, they just can't get the E in there. But anyway, three records. Tottenham Hotspur, record attendance, proudly trumpeting all over social media with their Koi's hashtag. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you want to know what their records are? 
85,011 people, and they have a tick box and it says, highest Tottenham Hotspur home attendance. Slight, slight small issue here. Just one small little thing here that, you know, it's not actually, it's not your, not your home. It was Wembley, remember? Your home is, is White Hart Lane, and Wembley is Wembley. It's where they have, you know, really terrible cup finals with lots of loud music to drown out the atmosphere beforehand. And, you know, England internationals, where England sometimes even score. That's Wembley, and your home is White Hart Lane. So I just, I don't think you can, you can count that one. And then they have another one that says, Highest English Club Home UCL Attendance. Again, just, you know, pointing out, I'm not trying to be pedantic. I'm not trying to cause you any difficulties or anything like that. But but it's it's not actually, it's not, not your home. White Hart Lane, Wembley. All right, and the third record that they set apparently was highest English club home attendance. You know, it's not, not home. Not, not your home. Your home, White Hart Lane. Wembley, not White Hart Lane. So these records, these records, they, they don't count. They don't count. 85,011 people may have gone to see Tottenham get beaten by Monaco, but there's, there's no records here. There are no records because your home is not, is not the home that you think it is. It's not. Your home is the one that's terror. You know the terrible one, the really, really bad one in the shithole. You know that one. That's that's yours. And Wembley is well. It's also a shithole. It's terrible, but it's it's uh, it's the FAs. You see. So I think you're trying to claim records that don't exist. Now, if Norris McWhorter were alive today, and you were trying to pass this off into the the Guinness Book of World Records. He'd be saying, uh-uh, no, you can't. You're just making up records here to suit yourself. Like I could say, I've just broken the world record for taking this Swiss army knife in my hand and swizzling it around on my finger four billion and six times, and nobody's ever done that. Give me the world record. And he'd say, no, it's just, that's not a valid record. You can't suit the, the facts of whatever it is you did to suit yourself. It's just not, no. So it's not happening. We can't allow these records to stand. They won't stand. And I think we need to go to the European Court of Human Rights and have Tottenham expelled from life. They're trying to take records from somebody who actually set those records. I don't know who they are. I don't know who those records belong to, nor do I care. But what I can't abide is is this kind of shallow misrepresentation of the facts. Simply won't do. We're living in an age of anti-intellectualism where, where facts no longer no longer matter. You can say whatever you want, and it doesn't matter if you can disprove it with actual, you know, facts and evidence. People don't care. Well, I think it's time to fight back. And the fact is, Tottenham were not at home. So, you know, fuck that shit. So look, we played uh, PSG the other night, and uh, performance-wise, it wasn't great. First half, difficult difficult you would say thank you edinson cavani i like the way just for like a few brief seconds at the start of the game he he could play football he knew what to do oh look i'll doink i had that one in there look at that i'm i'm good at this 
And then it was like for 89 or whatever, 94 minutes of, including the injury time, he just, he had no clue what to do other than to get himself in fantastic positions. It was like he stood in front of the goal, what am I, what am I meant to do here? Do I put it in the net or outside the net? I don't know. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just, I'll put it outside and next time I'll, I'll know based on the reaction of the crowd. And he put it outside the post and, and everyone went, oh, oh, for fuck's sake. So I think he knew what to do then. But then there was another one where he was confused. I think he couldn't quite remember. And he was like, I'm going to put it in the net or the other side of the net, in left of the post or in the middle of the two post. What is it? Oh, and he just fell over. It was very funny. I enjoyed his performance a great deal, apart from like the first 40 seconds. Apart from that, it was an enjoyable performance to witness. Bit worrying, though, that we were, you know, gifting him chances here, there, and everywhere. Our so-called defense, well, wasn't really up to much. And to be fair, they didn't get an awful lot of protection from the midfield. Our defensive midfielder was banging around up the top end of the pitch, trying to get on the end of little through balls. And look, nobody else was making those kind of runs. Nobody else was doing it. But, you know, I'm not sure he was the right guy. Get someone else to do that bit and let him, you know, defend, do the D part of the the DM. And that's not to be hugely critical of, of Coquelin, even though his uh, his selection, his team selection the other night, it, it raised a few eyebrows because people thought after the... After the uh, Southampton game, it was uh, Granite Xhaka was being rested for the for the midweek game against against PSG, but that turned out not to be the case. And this, you know, was more or less the reaction when the team sheet was uh, was uh, released for the game on Tuesday night. It was a bit like, oh man, oh god, oh man, oh god, oh man, oh god, oh man, oh god. That, by the way, was uh, Ryan O'Neill, the actor. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, It's a film called Tough Guys Don't Dance, written and directed by Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer, of all people. And that was the uh, the dialogue from that film. And, well, the acting, as you can hear, is absolutely first class. But there was a touch of the, oh, God, oh, man, when Coquelin's name was was listed on the team sheet, that too of David Ospina as well. People were going, what's going on? But it turns out that David Ospina is our Champions League goalkeeper and he played played pretty well overall. And look, we were down. We got it back to 1-1. We could, we could have snuck the win. Would have been uh, a most undeserved win. Not that I really care about that. But, you know, performance-wise, uh, it left quite a bit to be uh, desired. Just a bit. Result okay. Performance, mm, not so much. But look, why don't we talk a bit more about that in a bit more detail with our guest this week? Delighted to welcome back to the show for the first time this season, Paolo Bandini. Hi there. Hi there. How are you, Andrew? I'm all right. Uh, thwarted by technology, but what can you do? That's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with uh, PSG, uh, Arsenal's first Champions League game of the new campaign on Tuesday night away in Paris. And on the face of it, I think you'd say a 1-1 draw against the strongest opponent in the group away from home is not necessarily a bad result. And I don't think it is really a bad result, particularly given the way that Arsenal played on the night. There seems to be a fairly um, a big dichotomy between result and performance. Arsenal really struggled at times, particularly in the first half. 
yeah, I mean, result, I think we can say straight away, is, is a not just a good one, but a very good one, especially when you look at it in the light of what happened uh, to Basel as well, drawing with Ludogorets. It basically means, as you say, Arsenal played the toughest away game in the group um, and nobody's even been able to sort of take advantage of points dropped on either side. So it's um, it's, a, it's a great result. Um, I think, I'm just trying to remember what the stats were, actually. I think uh, uh, in the last sort of 30-odd uh European home games, PSG have only lost once, and actually only actually lost a home game once in the last thirty or European home games, and that was to Barcelona. They don't they don't lose games very often um, at, at home at all. So to get a point is is a fantastic result. But exactly as you say, I think that no one who watched this game could come away with an impression that Arsenal had played brilliantly or that they had even necessarily particularly deserved to draw the game. Uh, I think that there was some. Uh, encouraging something encouraging in the maturity shown and the and the, and the ability to dig themselves out of the hole and, and play some good better football towards the end of the game once changes have been made but uh, in terms of how the team lined up initially um how it absolutely failed to uh deal with Edinson Cavani I think that Edinson Cavani did a much better job of defending himself <laughs> than we did um I think uh, I think there was there was a lot that was wrong and this uh, this nonsense um with starting alexis sanchez up front on his own just doesn't just doesn't make any sense all right well let's let's go there seeing as you've gone there um arson wenger had two strikers sitting on the bench olivia Giroud and lucas perez his new <clears throat> signing from deportivo la coruña and he's he's insisted i guess on on playing alexis sanchez up front he spoke before the game about how he was picking a team to deal with the threat of of psg i wonder was that playing a part in in his selection there but i think the other thing that you look at when you look at alexis up front the uh, you know i don't think it works particularly well but what i also think it it does is it robs us of an effective wide option where he yeah. can be very very effective in the wide positions and you look at someone like alex oxley chamberlain for example who's not playing particularly well at the moment uh, and struggling uh, along with the team you'd have to say is not all down to him but he is definitely definitely struggling but uh, you know what what's your your big take on Alexis starting up front do you think it works or is it you know is it worth persisting with I mean, I mean no is, is my immediate answer and you know that this is a uh... This is so. This is my, uh, I guess, my Italian bias is coming out, and it's something that um, I'm not going to pretend for a second that this is uh, at all universal. Lots of Italian managers won't won't tell you about their tactics in any detail way either. But what you do get with, it, with Italian football, which I write about, obviously, is is sort of my bread and butter. Is the thing I do most. Um, it, what you do get is some managers, and right now I think if you say with Di Francesco at Sassuolo in particular, who sat down. Um, at Gazzetta dello Sports headquarters last year, and basically gave like a two-hour seminar on on some of his tactical ideas. But even other managers, uh, and even actually, I uh, credit to him, Rafa Benitez, when he was uh, uh, manager of Napoli, sort of embraced the spirit of it and, and would sort of spend long press conferences discussing specifics of tactics and even sort of getting up and walking walking around the press room and sort of maneuvering just into positions to demonstrate a point. I think that that's something that we don't get ever in, in Premier League clubs. And it's something that I would be fascinated to hear from, from Wenger on this specific point because I, I just don't get it. And I can sort of theorise um, certain things. So like I can theorise that maybe we know Alexis Sanchez is an unbelievably hard worker and maybe there's something about defending from the front there. Maybe there's something about knowing that we're not going to have all of the ball we want in this game, but wanting to be able to put the two centre-backs under pressure when they do have it, the PSG centre-backs, stop them from breaking easily. Maybe it's something about the way we react in, in, in a game where we won't have as much of the possession as we're used to having and, and you think that, uh, okay, well, you can invite them on a little bit and, and then exploit them on the counter because he's got that speed. But in, in a practical 
sense, I haven't ever seen this sort of work in a in a good fluid way when when we've tried it in, in games. I don't think it's ever uh, yet seemed like it's a, a functioning formation to me. Um, and frankly, every time I I just think that Sanchez looks. Uh, a bit lost like he doesn't know what position he's supposed to be taking up like he doesn't know exactly himself what his role is there and that's the really worrying thing i can sit there and grumble and be a, a grouchy journalist who doesn't get his way and, and, and get to you know he'd be privy to what the manager's thinking but um it worries me that sanchez himself doesn't seem to 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 fully understand what his what his role is when he's there and i think it was it was it was immediate when he was taken out of that position when Giroud came on, um, and and he had the chance to move into positions that were more comfortable to him. That uh, where he knows what he's doing, knows where he's going. His his performance improved dramatically, and exactly as you say, uh, it's 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 a double effect. It's it's one thing to have him up front and and him not to be interpreting that role in a productive manner, but when you also take him off the flank, you lose something there. And I think that. Uh, obviously, I want to see Alex Wobi get games. I think he's a, a talent who you have to make sure gets games. I'm not sure that a way to PSG is the game in which you do it. Without asking you to uh, cast shade upon some of your um, peers in, in the journalistic profession, why is it, <laughs> do you think, that... Uh, Nobody will ask Arsene Wenger that question. What was the tactical thinking behind selecting Alexis Sanchez as a striker? I mean, is it just because it's so not part of the culture and in Italian football, you know, it it's so it's it is such a huge part of the football culture there and the uh, the willingness and the ability to explain tactical decisions, whereas we very rarely, if ever get any kind of tactical discussion when the managers meet the press, either at their press conferences, because we've all these side issues, you know, they want to find out what does he think of what Mourinho said about this so they can go back telling tales to Mourinho to create back page headlines. I mean, why isn't there more focus on this kind of stuff when it comes to the co uh, coverage of football in England? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not something that I can, um, I can give you a, a, a full answer on because in the end, you know, I... I do much more of my work in 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 looking at the European games, looking at Italian games, particularly sure. going to, to to those places. I don't get to myself a lot of Arsenal press conferences. I don't, um, you know, it's not part of my day to day brief to be to be covering Arsenal, which I'm grateful for because it means I still get to be a fan. <laughs> um, but uh, but the um, it, it's a uh, it, it's definitely unfair on, on journalists to say these questions never get asked. I know that I have peers who I talk to about it and who I know have sort of tried to ask some of these questions. I do think that sometimes they are uh, sort of, I wouldn't say shouted down because that implies that someone's actually trying to silence them, which I don't think is true at all. But I think that they, their voices get overwhelmed by those of we do have a very um, tabloid heavy journalistic culture in this country and i think that the, the you know the, the, traditionally the tabloid uh, interest in sports is much more focused on the the gossip the rumor the the, the salacious stuff and, and a bit less on on the fine detail and i think that that's something that definitely influences the way these things get written about it definitely influences the conversations that are had in changing rooms in press conferences in in mix zones i think that absolutely is is true that it's hard to get your voice heard over those voices sometimes when they're so prevalent um, and I think that then there's sort of a, a chicken and egg thing going on where um, because that has been the prevailing culture, the managers themselves expect a certain kind of uh, coverage. They expect a certain kind of uh, conversation with reporters and they put their responses, you know, they, they, they fit their responses according to that. I think that in general, Premier League clubs have become so much more 
you know, I'm, I'm, I was going to say media savvy. I don't even know if it is media savvy because sometimes I think that Premier League clubs have made themselves so anodyne in the way that they deal with the media that it's actually quite uh, it's sort of it's no longer actually the ideal. It's it's so defensive and so afraid of showing any personality that it it actually stops you from getting real conversations going. And I think that. Uh, to, to look for a completely different example, to look at American sports where you have much more uh, access to to players, much more access to coaches, you have m- far more authentic conversations all of the time. And, you know, that's saying something. And America is a, is a nation that has a culture of anodyne media and media training and, 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 and this sort of uh, uh, blandness sometimes in its own sports. You'll hear American journalists complain about that all the time. But I still think relative to what we get in the Premier League nowadays, they they still get to have real conversations. And I think it's very hard the way the Premier League is set up now to have real conversations and that kind of mm. plays to both the, the journalists and the, the people who you're talking to. I think both sides of the, uh, uh, of that conversation have been so influenced by, uh, you know, the prevailing culture that's built over several years of this is what we're going to get. And this is what we're going to be allowed to talk about that you don't get to have authenticity. Yeah. It's sort of self-perpetuating in a way, isn't it? One feeds into the other and then you just sort of continue on this cycle of, of not finding anything out. I think, you know, there's real, I think there'd be genuine interest because you, you, you see, well, you see stuff online, I see stuff online and people will say, Arsene Wenger doesn't do tactics or hasn't got a clue about tactics. And, you know, hang on, this is a guy who's been a football manager for 30 odd years. You know, you can't not do tactics, but because it, it's never spoken about, we don't really get any insight into what he's thinking or the decisions that he's made. And sometimes he will be challenged or he will be asked about decisions. What was your reasoning for selecting this player or that? player but very often the way the question is posed he immediately becomes defensive you know mm-hmm. i've well i've made 500 substitutions or it's 2000 substitutions yeah. how many have you made you know and <laughs> you get you kind of get that and then you just you yeah. just never get any insight into into what they're thinking yeah i mean i, I think that, that and, and it's fair to say as well that what you've just said there i think that wenger himself i don't think this has been forever but i think in recent years he has developed a, a defensiveness on these issues that 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 only further exacerbates it i think that he <laughs> he does give answers exactly like the one that you just uh that you just gave for him like I, that is that is part of the picture as well he he, he is particularly uh, i think he's been frustrated by the way that he's been treated by the press at times and so he now has this sort of instant um desire to sort of or more, I don't know if it's a desire, but it certainly comes out as it's sort of seeming like he needs to put people back in their place for, for these questions. And that doesn't that doesn't help anybody either, I don't think. Mm. All right, well, look, just going back to PSG and maybe the uh, Southampton game last weekend as well. Two good results. Uh, obviously, Southampton, a late, late win. Um, uh, PSG, a relatively late draw um, to, to score the goal, to get a point away from home. But Arsenal rode their luck in both those games. Uh, we mentioned Edinson Cavani uh, for PSG, who was a bit of a horror show, thankfully, in front of goal. And Shane Long against uh, Southampton, he missed some glorious chances that would have put that game in a very different light had he had he taken them. So um, Arsenal's defensive situation this season or the the lack of defensive solidity is is a bit of a worry because I, I think you can only get away with performances like that or presenting chances like that to the opposition you can't do that um very often because you will end up getting punished and, and losing games or dropping points yeah no i mean arsenal were, were, were fortunate i think uh to, to beat stanton at the weekend and it's not you know the performance there was the performance there was was 
good in 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 patches. There was a lot of encouraging stuff in it. Um, we were well, you were mentioning earlier about the decision not to start Lucas Perez in in the PS in the PSG game. I thought that he was full of running in that game against Lampton, but perhaps didn't look like he'd quite found his place yet. Um, and I think maybe you could you could say that the same of Mustafi at the other end. In in some ways, I think that defense has looked a little bit. Um, not that we really got to see Koscielny and Rob Holding together, but I think that Mustafi sort of stepping into that defence has, has looked a bit more uncertain in this initial period with Koscielny than, than even Holding did. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know what, Mustafi has only just arrived and the season's already started. And I think this is a, a, a drum that I know you've been banging uh, through the preseason, Andrew. So I'm, I'm preaching to convert on this, but this is what happens when you bring players in and they don't have a preseason to work together. This is what happens when, and that's partly the fault of the Euros, but it's it's mostly the fault of, of the transfer policy like if you bring someone in this close to the end of the deadline and you're throwing them into the action with a couple of days of getting to know people I think especially at at center back really where that partnership is so important you're going to have you're going to have some problems initially and I think that that is definitely something that we saw um, in moments against Lampton, it was definitely something that we saw in moments against PSG. And I think that you can give credit to to both teams. Uh, I thought that particularly uh, last night, Serge Aurier was just absolutely a monster down the right. And that's uh, uh, he was causing so much trouble. And, and even Edinson Cavani, who frankly was missing chances that uh, just were incredible, his runs nevertheless the positions he was getting himself into that was uh the sign of a striker who knows where he's supposed to be and is also very good at getting there i think he's mm. his speed is underrated cavani he's impressively quick off the mark for a guy his size um and he was he was making runs that were causing that were causing problems so we can give some credit to psg but i, I to me the 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 difficulties defensively uh this may not be the whole picture because in the end it's not new that Arsenal have some problems at the back, but the idea that you can sign a centre-back and expect him to sort of walk straight into the team and uh, fit immediately and understand what his teammates thinking immediately and, and, and for those dynamics to work immediately, it's just, it's, it's unrealistic. Have you noticed anything about Arsenal's football this season that last season, there seemed to be a lack of identity that didn't seem to be Arsene Wenger's stamp on the team in terms of the way it attacked. Uh, and I think that was the thing that people had most trouble with, Arsenal having some defensive issues. That's not new. People are well used to that. Um, but what they've always been used to is a kind of swashbuckling, attacking football, dynamic, pacey, uh, and that wasn't present. And I don't think we're seeing that quite yet this season as well. How much of that is going to require time because I think obviously you mentioned the Euros, the fact that players have come in late, certain players who were away during the summer are being eased into action, certainly uh, Granite Xhaka for example is a new signing who's been very very much eased into action, people uh, I think would have expected him to start more games I I thought he was going to start against PSG on Tuesday Mm. night but uh, he obviously didn't, the manager's got a different idea just at this moment in time I mean is it going to take him a a little bit of time to, to to try and figure out the pieces of this particular puzzle, if he even knows what those pieces are or how he wants to put them together yet. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are things that are um, that, that, that are not fluid yet. And I think that, um, you know, the, the Slamson game was kind of a, a fascinating example because, first of all, I thought that there were a few... Uh, there are a few moments in that game where Meza Ozil was playing balls, as he does, that were just jaw-droppingly brilliant. I thought he, you know, he was sort of the uh, the guy holding it all together as as so often in that game. And uh, there were there, there was a, I thought it was really interesting with Perez because again, someone who's coming in and has barely had a chance to work with anybody, and and then going straight in there and trying to play. I think that he looked. Um, 
really lost for large parts of the game, but there were just a couple of moments. And there was one I was thinking of right at the beginning of the second half, particularly where he just uh, got the ball on the edge of the air, a little uh, reverse of direction with uh, a flick of the heel and then getting across the area and then opening himself up for a shot about 20 seconds later. There was just little flashes of, of the talent that's there. And I think that... Um, that's where Arsenal are at the moment. They are a team that is still under construction. I think that um, it's not surprising because, again, these players have arrived late. Players have come back from the Euros late. I think that more than uh, more even than than, than Shaka, who, I, as you would have expected a bit more at this point, I was also surprised that Giroud is apparently still not considered ready to start a game. I would have thought that he, even having played to the final with France, being the guy who does know the system, does know all these players, knows how it works, could have been uh, straight in the starting lineup for the game against PSG. So that there are some decisions by Wenger that are perplexing on that front because you think that there are ways which he could have done this to create a little bit more stability and a little bit more get those mechanisms working. But I, I would completely agree that we're not seeing um, we're not seeing the Arsenal that you would still hope to see. And I think that you can look at the lineups and, and that makes total sense. I mean, even Samson mm. uh, at the weekend, you had uh, Oxley, Chamberlain, Walcott in the wide position to start off with. And are those guys um, going to be, uh, are those guys going to be in those positions uh, for most of the season? I think most Arsenal fans probably hope not because you hope that you're going to see Sanchez starting every week in, those, in one of those positions. And uh, I suppose in an ideal scenario, it's going to be a while until we see him again, but you might have Welbeck starting in one of those positions. So uh, there's, it's not, it's not been uh clear at all what are what Wenger's first choice 11 is yet um but I think that we definitely haven't seen it yeah you mentioned Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain he looks like a man who is is really struggling and you have to think when Arsene Wenger decided to let Joel Campbell go on loan now Campbell did request to go on loan uh the request could have been turned down but he must have looked at Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain thought okay well, if I let Campbell go, it's not a huge amount that he, he, he contributes in terms of goals and assists. I think he had four goals and five assists last season. But it was certainly a lot better than Oxlade-Chamberlain's one goal and, and one assist. But he must have backed him. He must have the faith in him to, to make a step up so far uh, this season. That hasn't been the case. He he looks like a guy who's hit a kind of, almost like a kind of a roadblock in terms of his Arsenal career. And it's not for the want of chances either. No, and I will say on Campbell, I was really, I was, you can count me in the camp, I was really, really disappointed to see him go uh, this season because I actually thought that last year, I think we can, um, with some players, we can over overanalyze and over overemphasize the numbers. I just frankly thought that Arsenal looked like a better team with him in, in him in the side last year. I think that some of the best football was played when he was in the team, some of the best results were obtained when he was in the team. So I think the uh, uh, for him to be sent out on loan was, was sort of one of the great shames this summer, especially because that's already been the story of his career. And if, he, if there was ever going to be a time for him to stay and make it work, this was it. So um, I, I, I was disappointed by that. I definitely think he was a more productive player than, than, than Oxley Chamberlain has been re- lately. And yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of the same. It's sort of the same story as, as with Theo, but with even less end production. I think that both of them are players who we thought at this point of their careers would be, um, further developed would be more decisive in games. Obviously, Ox has a lot more years ahead of him, so he's 23 years old. So the the potential, we can still talk about him as a player with the potential to work these things out, but it does feel like you want to be seeing more, um, not necessarily linear, but more signs of progress than mm. we've seen from him so far. But, uh, finally, uh, Arsene Wenger, I suppose one of the the 
selection decisions, if we go back to PSG, was the fact that he chose David Ospina in goal uh, ahead of Petr Cech. And it certainly raised eyebrows before kickoff because people remember what happened last season when he chose David Ospina for the first couple of Champions League games and he made a, a big mistake, I think, against Olympiacos. Um, the decision to select him was obviously justified because of the performance. He was absolutely fantastic. And I think without him, um, notwithstanding Cavani's terrible finishing, I think it, it could have been, it really could have been a, a lot more difficult for Arsenal. Um, but the comments he made afterwards, he, he said, look, uh, we've spoke about, we spoke to the keepers before the season. They know what their roles are. And it sort of suggests that he's gone down this role or down this road rather of, of having a different keeper for the Premier League or the domestic league and also uh, Europe or cup competitions. And we've seen that with some of the big clubs uh, in recent years. And he seems to be doing the same thing with uh, with Ospina and Czech this time. Yeah, and, and and I don't get it. It's it's not it's not for me. Um, it's clearly not that Wenger is the first guy to, to ever do this. It's been the it was the thing at Barcelona with Claudio Bravo and and Ter Stegen. They were they were exactly the same setup. One of them for the league, one of them for the Champions League. And in, in a certain sense, with with Bravo leaving and going to Manchester City, you could say, well, what they did there was they were. Um, they future-proofed themselves in some way. They, they gave themselves a situation where they had two goalkeepers they trusted, and when one needed to go, then that was that was okay. Now, I don't think that Arsenal are um, likely to sell Petr Cech, given his age, until the time comes that they don't want him anymore. I think that it's more likely that if you're trying to future-proof yourself, you're doing that against his eventual retirement. And for me, at 34 years old, being a goalkeeper, being as, as good a goalkeeper as he's been, it feels like that's probably still a few years off. And so you asking Aspina to to do this and accept it until it's his time, which could be in three or four years' time when he's into his 30s and just swallow these years. Maybe. Maybe that's a way that the, the top-level football works now, and that's just sort of a way of protecting your assets so that when, when the time comes, you know you've got another keeper who's competent and up to the job. But in the end, I just feel like it feels so unnecessary, you know? Mm. Um, a, a team like Arsenal has the resources to know that when the time came to replace Czech, it would be able to find a goalkeeper to replace Czech. That's not something that should be beyond a team with the financial uh, strength that Arsenal has. Uh, if you want Aspina just to play games, then even perhaps considering something like all the domestic games, so you would say League Cup and the FA Cup, that's something that, that I would be more um, open to. But I think that in the end, there are two competitions that do stand out for fans and and I feel like for the for the club as well above everything and that's the league and the champions league and I just um in an individual sense and managing a season I can see the case for not always playing your strongest team in every game in both those competitions because you need to rest bodies you need to keep guys fit but with goalkeepers where you're not worried about that I don't uh, I don't get it yeah I mean what I mean let's say check uh, and he hasn't been flawless by any means but let's say check uh is the number one goalkeeper and obviously is for the Premier League and is playing extremely well and we get to the round of 16 and Arsenal you know somehow have won the group and you know they they draw a big team in the Champions League uh, maybe they get through the round of 16 miracle might happen uh, and they get to a quarter final and they're playing Barcelona or they're playing uh, Bayern Munich or Real Madrid um and Czech is the goalkeeper in form I mean is he making a rod for his own back to a certain extent in that it might become very difficult then to uh, to not pick Ospina if he's picked him in all the other games. And, you know, I'm leaving aside here the fact that Ospina was actually really, really good uh, against PSG. PSG, his performance w- was excellent. But it just seems to add a layer of complication to things that isn't really necessary. 
yeah, I mean, I, I think the only way you can do this, uh, or at least the only way I think you, that I think is is right to do it, is that it, once you once you commit to it, that's it. Like that, Ospina is your Champions League goalkeeper, and again, I believe that that has been the situation with Ter Stegen at Barcelona's last few years. It's not like when they got to the latter stages of the competition, he, he lost his place. He was just the Champions League goalkeeper, and uh, whatever that means, it means. Um, I think that uh, a lot of Arsenal fans might start to get a little bit edgy if Arsenal were to get to the latter stages of the competition um, and Despina was, was still in goal, even if he played well in those games. Because in the end, that comes down to a sort of real comes down to a real philosophical point for me. Unless you are genuinely saying these two keepers are of exactly the same caliber and I just can't choose between them and this is the only way to resolve the fact that they're exactly the same caliber. If you have one of them who is stronger, why would you not use him in a game that you really, really, really want to win? <laughs> yeah. Um and and so for me it's 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 an awkwardness and it's uh, something that makes me just uncomfortable in general. But um if if this is the path he's going down, then I almost feel like he has to do that. He has to say, you know what, uh, David, you're you're my guy from here to the end, whatever that involves. And even if you uh, drop a ball like you did last season, then I'm going to stand up for you and and defend you in the press and say this is how it's going to be. Mm. Well, look, uh, I think we could agree that uh, if it does get to that situation or if we do get too late in the competition and this is an issue that he has to have uh, or has to deal with, then, uh, you know, that's one that I think we'd welcome given the uh, the Champions League. Exactly, exactly. Listen, we better leave it there. Paolo, thanks very much indeed. Anytime. Thank you very much indeed to Paolo Bandini. You can find him on Twitter. Make sure you give him a follow. It's Paolo underscore Bandini. That's Paolo. Hello underscore Bandini. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arseblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arseblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arseblog. Right then. Right. What have we got? We've got to preview the uh, the whole game. And, of course, we're going to look ahead very quickly uh, to midweek action again. Obviously not Champions League, but we are playing a midweek game on Tuesday against Nottingham Forest. And that means a return against a couple of former Arsenal players. We'll talk about that in a couple of moments' time. But just want to remind you that you can win actual real-life cash money in your pocket by playing FanDuel. Go to fanduel.co.uk, sign up from there using the promo code ARSBLOG, and if you don't win, FanDuel will refund you up to uh, £10 on your entry. So uh, so that's not too bad. You can play for free if you like, uh, but if you uh, put some money in your account, you can enter the big competitions, which have the bigger prizes. Uh, that's the way it works. We're entering the £7,500 fan favourite. The top 401 entries into this will win actual money, uh, so you stand a good chance of winning. Uh, I've already entered. Here's my team that's not going to win anything because I'm, I'm still really terrible at this. This is, what, week five, and I haven't won, an, I haven't won a penny, but that's down to me. I'm sure all of you guys are much better. My team uh, for this particular weekend is Schmeichel, Sanya, Koscielny, Blind, Mesut Ozil, Kevin De Bruyne, Ward-Prowse, uh, Harvard Nordweit. Remember him? He used to play for Arsenal. Uh, Lukaku, Alexis Sanchez, and Ian Acho. Um, so I'm thinking that could be a decent team. I'm picking players from the teams that look like they're going to beat the other teams and players who might score goals and keep clean sheets. So we'll wait and see. Uh, but if you do want to sign up, go to fanjewel.co.uk. You can download their apps for iOS and for Android. And when you do sign up, use the promo code ARSBLOG uh, in the uh, promo code box and they'll refund your uh, your first entry if you don't win any money. So uh, you can't really say fairer than that. So look, this weekend we're playing Hull. As yet, there is no team news. Thursday evening, we normally get a bit of team news, but there doesn't appear to be any just yet. I wonder if Theo Walcott might be back. He missed the game uh, in midweek with a, a mild knee injury, which, of course, will raise uh, eyebrows and set alarm bells ringing because uh, we don't really do mild injuries, but he could be back. Aaron Ramsey, he was in training, certainly last week. Uh, he was training ahead of the PSG game, training uh, a bit aside from the others. He wasn't quite ready to make the trip, but he could be back uh, in the squad, uh, give the manager something else to think about another midfielder to try and fit into his team and I do wonder uh, if he's going to rotate things again uh, after the, the midweek obviously because Orlan Coquelin have played two games in a row uh, is he going to bring in Granite Xhaka he played Granite Xhaka away at Watford so you would think away at Hull he could be uh, inclined to use him Mohamed Elneny in there as well he could play uh, Olivier Giroud will the manager pick Olivier Giroud up front he seems reluctant to pick him at all really this season so far I know he's just coming back from the European Championships, but he did get sent off, didn't he, against against PSG? And I think maybe, maybe he was a little bit unlucky when it came to the second one. I think there was a bit of uh, shenanigans going on there between Marco Verratti and Marquinhos. Uh, but if Giroud hadn't put himself in the position where he picked up a yellow card in the first place, then it wouldn't be even a talking point. It would just be like a stupid thing that happened towards the end of the game and he got a booking. But when he came on against PSG... There were some whistles from the crowd, 
and maybe he reacted to that. Maybe he reacted to the fact that he was on the bench in the first place. He might have felt that this was the perfect game for him to start away in Paris, uh, having not played yet or not really played much this season. This could have been a good game for him. He might have been frustrated. He came on, and first thing he did was shoulder barge a guy, and then he barged into a, a guy again, and the referee had a word, and he was like, ah, oh, fuck off, ref. Leave me alone. I'm Olivier Giroud. You can't do anything to me. And then there was another foul, and the referee blew up for a free kick and if he just held his hands up and gone "Mm, yeah okay okay but instead he mouthed off at the referee and picked up a yellow card a completely needless yellow card and the result of that the consequence of that of course is you put yourself in a dangerous position especially when you're up against guys who've got you know a bit of sneaky gamesmanship going on which is what was happening with the two PSG players so I wonder will that inform the manager's thinking will he be a bit cheesed off with Olivier Giroud because of that Uh, you know I hope we do start one of the strikers though up front. I'm not big on Alexis uh, playing in that particular position. I think uh, given the struggles of a couple of our wide players, it might be better to use Alexis there uh, and let him make an impact from, from a wide area. And if we do have to compensate a bit for his lack of tracking back, then maybe that could be done in midfield. Maybe you put someone like Mohamed Elneny in who can cover uh, and shuffle across if he's playing in a deep midfield area and you're not quite as reliant on Alexis tracking back. So either Giroud or Lucas Perez uh, getting the nod up front and then we'll see who plays on the right-hand side depending uh, who's going to be fit. So uh, we hope it'll be something a bit more like the Watford game. The first 45 minutes at Watford were the best we've played all season. So it would be good if we could repeat a bit of that. If we could definitely cover out the presentation of chances to the opposition if we could stop spreading ourselves wide open for them to penetrate us i think that would be that would be very welcome because we do have do have good attacking players and maybe if we get the midfield balance right our attacking game will be a lot better but we can't keep giving chances the way we have been in the last two games to opponents even if it's even if it's only whole city and i say that in inverted commas you know they you know these these guys could hurt us if you give them good chances. Uh, not everyone is going to miss every time the way that Cavani and, and Shane Long have done. So uh, I hope that we can see something a bit more Watford, something a bit tighter, a bit more secure uh, from this Arsenal side uh, in terms of uh, our defensive game and also just the performance in general. That would be that would be very nice. And then, of course, midweek we'll have a chance to give a run out to some of the fringe players, some of the guys who haven't been playing very much, uh, and also some of the young talent. You might see the Jeff, uh, Chuba Agpom, people like that involved as we play Nottingham Forest in the EFL Cup. We'll be facing Henry Lansbury, a former Arsenal player, and of course Mick Bentner, the greatest striker that ever lived, uh, is now playing for uh, Nottingham Forest. His uh, his sojourn in, in Wolfsburg didn't work out. They, uh, they, they didn't get along, it would be fair to say, and they uh, cut short his contract. Uh, he says that, you know, he's not there for the fast money. He's there to show people what he can do and look on his day. Uh, he can do things. We just have to uh, hope, I suppose, that it's it's not his day. I don't mind if he scores goals all season long for Nottingham Forest. It makes no difference to me. But on this uh, particular occasion, I hope it's uh, I hope it's not his most successful night. And that's not out of badness to make Bender. I just don't ever want anyone to score against Arsenal. So uh, so there you go. So look, on Monday, James and I will be here. We will be discussing the uh, the whole game and we'll be looking ahead to the Nottingham Forest game a little bit as well. So join us for an Arscast Extra there. And just a reminder that next weekend, if you're in New York City, James and I are going to be doing a live Arscast Extra on Sunday uh, from the Barley Corn which is uh, downtown a bit, I think near um, near Wall Street somewhere. We're going to be doing that after 
the Chelsea game, which takes place on the Saturday. So uh, feel free to come along and join us for that. If you want details, check out the Arsenal NYC group on Facebook. I think that's facebook.com forward slash Arsenal NYC. They've got all the details of that. Uh, so do please, uh, if you're in the area or if it's not too far uh, to travel, come in and say hello and uh, enjoy the podcast and have a beer on a Sunday afternoon. What else would you be doing? Sure, there's nothing else to do in New York. I mean, it's a fairly quiet town, you got to say. So we're, tr- we're trying to liven things up a little bit. But that's next week. We'll give you some more details of that on Monday as well. So look, uh, let's keep fingers crossed for good results uh, this weekend. Uh, have yourselves a good time, and I'll chat to you on next week's show. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. go there's everybody's favorite gothic nuns the sisters of mercy and this corrosion right here on holy god fm and i'm mick banner not only am i the greatest striker that ever lived i'm the greatest dj that ever lived i'm better than rick dees i'm better than giles peterson i'm better than tony blackburn and here i am in the chair spinning the wheels of steel on this special guest show here on holy god fm they got in touch with me and said oh mcbanner mcbanner you are the greatest dj that ever lived and you are also the lord and we love the lord here on holy god fm i also love the lord because i am the lord and i really love myself you might notice, though, that I've been away. Things didn't work out for me in Germany, in Wolfsburg. Number one, too many wolves. And number two, I'm not telling you what happened, but I am a much improved, better, make better. I'm older. I'm wiser. I'm more sagacious. And it has been many years now since I made love to any form of public transport. I'm looking forward to seeing some of my old Arsenal mates in the EFL Cup when I'm playing for my new club Nottingham Forest. That's coming up this week and people will be saying, Oh, McBenor, McBenor, not only are you the greatest DJ that ever lived and you are the greatest striker that ever lived, you are, you are, you are very lonely and alone, aren't you? And I'll say, yes, I am. And I'll ring myself up on the radio and say, Hey, McBenor. Would you like to hear a chion? And I'll say, yeah, do you have that one that goes, Hey there, you with the sad face, come up to McBenner's place and live it all up.
And they'll say, yeah, I do have that. Because do you know why? I'm mental as anything. And that's the perfect segue into this particular tune. By the way, uh, to Piers, who was ringing up looking for a bit of Phil Collins, stick that right up your cunt, mate. No chance. Come on to my 